I think you have mass amounts, probably more people than ever in society that have no real meaning. They're isolated. And then more people than ever are unmarried and don't have children. um, And they're disconnected from their family. You just have a lot of people in our demographic who work jobs they hate. They're stuck in front of their computer all day long. They don't go outside. They're very unhealthy. Most people in American society, at least I'm sure in the UK too, most of them are overweight. They have a terrible diet, and then you put all that together, and then they find this sort of empty meaning on social media, and they feel like they're a part of something because they've never really been a part of something bigger than themselves before. And then another reason, too, is just the complete lack of lack of God in society, and so you're just leaving people with this empty hole in their heart. They have no meaning, nothing, and then they take to Twitter, to Instagram, and they find something that feels like it's bigger than themselves, yes. and then they latch onto it, and then they just they turn into bots. Welcome to the Docs to Dialogue, a podcast about living life on mission for the glory of God. My name is David Rudy, and I'm the pastor of Doxa Church. So there's an author named Jonathan Haidt who has written some fascinating books on American psychology over the last few years. His most popular book is called The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. I highly recommend that book. Another book he wrote is called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. But most recently, he wrote an article in the Atlantic magazine called, get this title, I I saw this title and I had to read it, not only because of who he is as an author, but because of this title. Why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. It's not just a face. Fascinating article if you want to look it up. But in this article, he heavily leans on the Genesis 11 story of the Tower of Babel as an illustrative metaphor for what happened to America in the early 2010s. Something went terribly wrong very suddenly, and our country has been fractured, and the divides are growing deeper and stronger. Similar to the Tower of Babel, we are disoriented, seemingly unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth. And there are now aggressive attempts to change the dictionary on a monthly basis, it seems, and redefine and re-educate people on, on race and gender norms. In many ways, we are cut off from one another, and more and more people are getting cut off from the past. So here's where I'm going with this episode. In the cold open, you heard a snippet of Gina Bontempo, describing dissatisfied people who are in a rut. And there are a lot of angry, depressed people in our country, more than ever before. Gina is a Christian who focuses on having a healthy diet and a healthy mind. But one of the most debilitating causes of joy and peace and being a victor, not a victim, is what Jonathan Haidt calls the Tower of Babel of our day, and that is social media. And that's what I want to wade into today. This is a huge topic. We're definitely not covering all aspects of it. But social media in many ways has contributed to a breakdown of morals and structures of shared values in our society. And I know a lot of our listeners know people who are in these destructive patterns. And some of you who are listening also may be in the throes of it. 
And I know you may not want to hear another podcast on how social media is so bad. We all know that it can be. I mean, just yesterday in my email, I, I got a notification from the Gospel Coalition with this this episode that they had, a podcast that they had called Scrolling Alone, How Instagram is Making a Generation of Girls Lonely, Anxious, and Sad. I mean, the stats are just out there everywhere of how depressed and how filled with stress people are more than ever before. In 2009, about a quarter of American high school students, this is almost 25% of American high school students said they had persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. That was bad in 2009. That was way worse than it had been a decade before then. But last year, it makes 2009 look great. Last year, it was up to 44% of high school students had persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. The highest level of teenage sadness ever recorded. And for girls, the rate rose to 57%. That means that more than half of teenager girls feel persistently sad or hopeless. But this problem is not just with teenage girls. And this problem is more than just how social media is hurting you. I think we all know that it can. There absolutely can be some good in it. There, there is a way to live on mission for the glory of God with social media as a tool, 100%. But this is an ambitious episode, and we're going to break down how it hurts you so much and what you can do about it. But first, let's begin by diving into what God's Word actually says about the Tower of Babel. After the flood, God had said to Noah in Genesis 9 verse 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Same thing he told Adam and Eve. That's, and that's what chapter 10 describes. It was happening as people and languages multiplied. It looked like a simple fulfillment of God's command in Genesis chapter 10. It looked like obedience. Then in Genesis 11, Verses 1 through 9, we get this bomb dropped on us. It was an obedience. People actually weren't spreading. They were clustering. And God came down and shattered their disobedience and made their clustering impossible. He confused their language and broke humanity into many peoples and languages. So let's dig in here for a few minutes and see what the sin was and then what God's judgment was before we go into this analogy of our present problem. So Genesis 11 verses 1 through 4. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and butim for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Do you see the direct rebellion against God right there? God's will for all mankind is not that we find joy in being praised, but that we find joy in praising him. And the key statements are in verse 4. First, they aim to build a city. Second, they aim to build a tower in the city that reaches to the heavens. Third, they aim to make a name for themselves. 
And fourth, they aim not to be dispersed over the whole earth. The first two of these correspond to the second two. Building a city is the way one avoids being dispersed over the whole earth. And building a tower into the heavens is the one way to make a name for yourself. So the city and the tower are the outward expression of the inward sins. The two sins are love of praise, you know, you crave to make a name for yourself, and a love of security. So you build a city and don't take the risks of filling and subduing the earth. This is very important that you get this. God's will for human beings is not that we find our joy in being praised, but that we find our joy in knowing and praising him. And that's your first hint to how this does correlate well into an analogy for the present social media phenomenon, which at its core easily turns into a game of getting followers and likes and inflating yourself with praise from strangers. So I'll say that again. God's will for human beings is not that we find our joy in being praised, but that we find our joy in knowing and praising Him. His will is not that we find our security in cities or in an online identity or an acceptance from a group of people that you don't know, but that we find our security in God in whom we willfully obey. So the spectacular sin of man is that even after the flood— which was a thunderclap of warning against sin for Noah and his descendants. It turns out that we're no better after the flood than we were before. The human condition is just like it was with Adam and Eve. They will decide for themselves what is best, and they think they can even rise up and claim the place of God. This is the story of mankind to this very day apart from redeeming grace. So two things in Genesis 11 verse 5 that signal that man is about to be put in his place. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which of the children of man had built. Notice that he calls them, first of all, the children of man, or translated another way, the sons of Adam. The building of the city and this tower are similar to what Adam did when he rebelled against God and ate of the tree. Sinful nature of Adam goes on in his descendants, including you and me. Second, it says, the Lord came down to the city and the tower. This is holy scorn. The author mocks the tower by saying God had to come down to see it. This tower is so far from being in heaven. God can't see it from heaven. Of course, God can see everything everywhere. But when you want to show the ludicrous nature of man's pride in his little achievements, you describe God as peering down in search of this great tower with its top in the heavens. Now, what will God do in response to this sin of man who is refusing to fill the earth with God's glory? He's he's doing the opposite, right? He's securing his life in a city and trying to exalt himself to the place of God. Well, Genesis 11 verses 6 through 8. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. God knows we have potential. We're made in his image. We can do a lot, for good or for bad. Back to the text. And nothing that they propose to do will now be possible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth, and they left 
off building the city. God dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So his response to the presumption and the arrogance of man was to make it harder for man to communicate and thus to unite in this God-belittling global plan. God has built into the world a system by which the pride of different groups of people restrains the pride of other groups of people. God knows the immense potential of human beings created in his own image. And he has given them amazing liberty to exalt themselves and design their own security systems without trusting him. But there are limits. Thousands of languages around the world and thousands of different people limit the global aspirations of arrogant mankind. So think about this. Literally, what this passage is teaching is that the languages of the world are the judgment of God on sin, and they are designed by God for the global glory of Jesus Christ. God does not act whimsically or haphazardly or aimlessly. So when he permits this sin of the pride and presumption and rebellion on the plains of Shinar, he knows exactly what he is doing and what his response to it will be. This means that the people and the languages of the world are not an afterthought. They are the judgment of God on sin, and at the same time, they are designed by God for the global glory of Jesus Christ. One day, we will all be together with one language. But the myriad of languages are a result of the curse of sin. They are a judgment of God that prevents man from even greater rebellion. So in one sense, they are an act of mercy. And I love how John Piper breaks down this truth. He preached a sermon on this passage a few years ago, and he had five ways the Tower of Babel shows the glory of Christ. I want to give you three of them. God's division of the world into different languages hinders the rise of a global, monolithic, anti-Christian state that would have the power to simply wipe out all Christians. You know, we often think that the diversity of languages and cultures and peoples and political states is a hindrance to world evangelism and the spread of Christ's glory? Well, that's not the way God sees it. God is more concerned about the dangers of human uniformity than he is about human diversity. We humans are far too evil to be allowed to unite in one language or one government. The gospel of the glory of Christ spreads better and flourishes more because of 6,500 languages, not just in spite of it. Here's the second way, according to Piper, that the story of the Tower of Babel glorifies Christ. Suppose someone asks, but isn't there going to be in the last days a great global government where Christians are in fact persecuted everywhere? And the answer is yes. In the last day, God will loosen the restraints that now hold back this evil. The Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, as Paul calls him in 2 Thessalonians 2, the beast, as John calls him in Revelation 13, will rise with the great global attraction and there will be horrific persecution of Christians. But here's the link with the rebels of Shinar, the tower they built, that was called the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. The word Babel in Hebrew occurs over 200 times in the Old Testament, and it is translated Babylon in all but a few. When the writer in Genesis 11:9 says, therefore, its name was called 
Babel because there the Lord confused the languages in all the earth. It's actually a put down of the great city of Babylon. It means that Babylon, with its vaunted towers and walls and gardens and idolatry, is a pitiful effort compared to God. And this name Babel, or Babylon, is the name given to the city of the beast in the book of Revelation, chapter 14. And in this, the glory of Christ shines because even though for a brief season Babylon is drunk with the blood of Christian martyrs, chapter 17 of Revelation, She will, just like the Tower of Babel, be put to naught. Here's a description that marks her out as a later day Tower of Babel. This is Revelation 18, verse 5. Her sins are heaped high as heaven. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. That's Revelation 18, verses 5, 7, and 10. So yes, in the last day, God will loosen the restraint he has put on the nations. They will swell with pride of Babylon. Christians will suffer. And then in one instant, Christ will come from his infinite heights and slay the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 And Babylon will be no more. The pride of man will be eliminated from the earth and the story of Genesis 11, 1-9 is a foreshadowing of that. The victory there at the end is the victory of Christ. And here's Piper's third point. The third way that the sin of Babel and God's judgment on it leads to the global glory of Christ. The authority and the power of Jesus is magnified because he lays claim on every language group and every people. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28. Yes, in response to sin, God has divided the languages and the nations. But in the end... It magnifies the authority and the power of Christ to make disciples in every tribe, tongue, and nation, every language. His power is all the more glorious because he breaks it into so many different languages and peoples and cultures, and his truth brings salvation to all. So that's the story of the Tower of Babel, or you could say the Tower of Babylon. Babel is a mockery of Babylon. Man is a pawn in the hands of God, and man can and will attempt to be like God, but God is sovereign and he holds this world in the palm of his hand. He will accomplish his will and no man can thwart it. Now, this is where I want to go back and tie in Jonathan Haidt's analogy. We just covered this distant story in Genesis. Hopefully it's no longer fuzzy to you and you understand it well. But the Tower of Babel is not a story about tribalism. It's a story about the fragmentation of everything. It's about the shattering of all that had seemed solid and the scattering of people who had been a community. And in a modern sense, the hostility that we are facing online today can be traced back to the years 
2009, 2010, 2011, the social media revolution really kicked off. And it's done something to our culture. And this isn't just between red and blue, but it's actually within the left and within the right, as well as within universities, companies, professional associations, museums, even families. So I'm going to read a couple of excerpts from this article, the one that I referenced at the top, to give you a taste of what he's talking about. And we're going to answer the first question. How is social media so destructive? The early internet of the 1990s with its chat rooms, message boards, and emails exemplified the non-zero thesis, as did the first wave of social media platforms, which launched around 2003. MySpace, Friendster, and Facebook made it easy to connect with friends and strangers to talk about common interests for free and at a scale never before imaginable. By 2008, Facebook had emerged as a dominant platform with more than 100 million monthly users on its way to roughly 3 billion today. In the first decade of the new century, social media was widely believed to be a boon to democracy. What dictator could impose his will on an interconnected citizenry? What regime could build a wall to keep out the internet? The high point of techno-democratic optimism was arguably 2011, a year that began with the Arab Spring and ended with the global Occupy movement. That is also when Google Translate became available on virtually all smartphones. So you could say that in 2011, so you could say that 2011 was the year that humanity rebuilt the Tower of Babel. We were closer than we had ever been to being one people, and we had effectively overcome the curse of division by language. For techno-democratic optimists, it seemed to be only the beginning of what humanity could do. And I remember this time. In February 2012, Mark Zuckerberg, as he prepared to take Facebook public, reflected on those extraordinary times and set forth his plans. Today, our society has reached another tipping point, he wrote to a letter to investors. Facebook hoped to rewire the way people spread and consume information by giving them the power to share. It would help them to once again transform many of our core institutions and industries, end quote. In the 10 years since then, Zuckerberg did exactly what he said he would do. He did rewire the way we spread and consume information. He did transform our institutions and pushed us past the tipping point. But it has not worked out as he expected. Historically, civilizations have relied on shared blood, gods, and enemies to counteract the tendency to split apart as they grow. But what is it that holds together large and diverse secular, secular democracies such as the United States? Social scientists have identified at least three major forces that collectively bind together successful democracies. Social capital, extensive social networks with high levels of trust. Number two, strong institutions. And number three, shared stories. Social media has weakened all three. To see how we must understand, to see how, we must understand how social media changed over time, and especially in the several years following 2009. 
In the early incarnations, platforms such as MyFace, Facebook were relatively harmless. They allowed users to create pages on which to post photos, family updates, and links to the mostly static pages of their friends, their favorite bands. And in this way, early social media can be seen as just another step in the long progression of technological improvements. From the postal service through the telephone to email and texting that helped people achieve the ongoing goal of maintaining their social ties. But gradually, social media users became more and more comfortable sharing intimate details of their lives with strangers and corporations. They became more adept at putting on performances and managing their personal brand, activities that might impress others, but that do not deepen friendships in the way that a private phone conversation would. Once social media platforms had trained users to spend more time performing and less time connecting, and that's key, the stage was set for a major transformation which began in 2009, the intensification of viral dynamics. Before 2009, Facebook had given users a simple timeline, never-ending stream of content generated by their friends and connections, with the newest posts at the top and the oldest ones at the bottom. This was overwhelming in its volume, but it was an accurate reflection of what others were posting. That began to change in 2009 when Facebook offered users a way to publicly like posts with the click of a button. That same year, Twitter introduced something even more powerful, the retweet button, which allowed users to publicly endorse a post while also sharing it with all their followers. Facebook soon copied that innovation with its own share button, which became available to the smartphones in 2012. Like and share buttons quickly became the standard features of most other platforms. Shortly after its like button began to produce data about what best engaged its users, Facebook developed algorithms to bring each other the content most likely to generate a like or some other interaction, eventually including the share as well. Later research showed that posts that trigger emotions, especially anger, are the most likely to be shared. By 2013, social media had become a new game, with dynamics unlike those in 2008. If you were skillful or lucky, you might create a post that would go viral or make you internet famous for a few days. If you blundered, you could find yourself buried in hateful comments. Your post either made you popular or disliked based on the clicks of thousands of strangers, and you were in turn contributing thousands of clicks to the game. This new game encouraged dishonesty and mob dynamics. Users were guided not just by their true preferences, but by their past experiences of reward and punishment, and their prediction of how others would react to each new action. One of the engineers at Twitter who had worked on the retweet button later revealed that he regretted his contribution because it had made Twitter a, because it had made Twitter a nastier place. And isn't that true? As he watched Twitter mobs forming through the use of the new tool, he thought to himself, we might have just handed a four-year-old a loaded weapon. The newly tweaked platforms were mostly perfectly designed to bring out our most moralistic and least reflective selves, and the volume of outrage was shocking. It was just this kind of twitchy and explosive spread of anger 
that James Madison had tried to protect us from when he was drafting the U.S. Constitution. The framers of the Constitution were excellent social psychologists. They knew that democracy had an Achilles heel because it depended on the collective judgment of the people. And democratic communities are subject to the turbulency and weakness of unruly passions, end quote. The key to designing a sustainable republic, therefore, was to build a mechanism to slow things down, to cool passions, to require compromise, and give leaders some insulation from the mania of the moment while still holding them accountable to the people periodically on election day. The framers of our constitution were brilliant. So I could go on and on, but this article really goes deep into the mechanics of what the mob mentality will do to you. Social media, at its best, can simply be a way to keep up with your friends and engage in a better way. Share some laughs, make some jokes, easily record your photos, but it can easily slip into a performance and into a facade or a carefully crafted representation of who you want to be. And in turn, a breakdown of real relationships have been the nasty fruit of social media. So in a variety of ways, it has broken down the basics of how to communicate and show genuine care. And right now, there is a generation of young adults who have grown up with the phone in their hands. And they have been given an instrument that is far too powerful for them to contain because they've never been taught on the dangers of it and how to actually handle it. In a very real sense, we have a lot of people who are victims of the technological advances of social media. There are still far too many adults who don't understand any of this and who simply cave and give their kid what they want because they've begrudgingly accepted that this is just the new normal. But in a variety of ways, it creates an alternate universe around your perspective. And it breaks down all the structures of healthy communication and development that we all need. So let's review how present-day social media is like the ancient Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. It has the same goal. Mankind's sinful nature has this fallen tendency to compare and compete. And as soon as you slip into the mindset of creating content to enhance your digital identity and you lose a grip on being yourself, you've crossed over into this watershed mindset which seeks validation and acceptance from a bunch of faceless people who don't know you and who can't know you. There's a very real danger in this undefined line of what you are doing on social media and who you are doing it for. Do you see that? Most people don't even think about it this way. But this is what you need to be teaching your teenagers. And this is what Gen Z and millennials really need to be aware of. That's the first parallel. There is this invisible line of a performance and who you're doing it for that really a lot of times goes unspoken. That's the first parallel. It can be about elevation of self. Secondly, social media has brought the world together, but not in a good way. The more people it brings together, the more silos it creates. And then you don't see people face to face. 
we all know how much easier it is to be nasty when you aren't looking at a human being. The comment section is toxic almost everywhere. And that does not surprise God. God knew what he was doing when he actually divided people with the languages because he knew this is what mankind would turn to. So online, we have created this mob mentality of shaming and attacking and canceling people. It's a hotbed of hypocrisy and truth mixed with error. So in the second parallel, we are seeing what would happen right now if more and more people are connected. And it's not pretty. Again, it's the mercy of God that people are scattered into smaller groups and living simpler lives with people in their villages and their language. There's something intrinsically healthy about seeing people's faces and knowing people. A human can only handle so many relationships. We aren't designed to be famous and know thousands of people. It's beyond our capacity. In many ways, social media has turned into a modern Tower of Babel and connected you with too many voices and too many wacky ideas. And it's system overload, which translates into stress and panic and even depression. So here's some questions that you need to ask yourself. Let's start with the obvious one. How much time am I spending on social media? That will really tell you a lot. Then ask yourself, what kind of content am I consuming? Is this hobby shopping? Is it funny memes? Or is it truly informative? There's a lot of good things in their place can be great. And I love watching history videos on YouTube with my kids. My boys and I have fallen in love with soccer, and we can go back and watch highlights of the greatest players to ever play the game. It's an incredible luxury. Like, that's a fun tool to have. So, of course, you have to keep it in its place. And some people use it as their newspaper. They listen to smart people on podcasts. And, and yes, you can get all of that. It's awesome. But once you move past constructive growing in knowledge or keeping up with friends through messaging and sharing photos, and you enter into the content creating side of things, you're wading into a very precarious place. And of course, that's not all bad either. Not to say that's all bad, but just be honest with yourself. Have you slipped into this place where you have crossed this invisible line of allowing social media to be the place where you are engaging and interacting with strangers and you're presenting yourself to people who you don't even know or people that you don't really know well that are just your acquaintances? Are you allowing this to form your identity? Do you care about how many likes and responses you're getting? Seriously, ask yourself this. Am I comparing myself? Am I trying to present myself to be something I'm not? This is when social media gets dark. It goes from being a blessing and a fun tool into being something that sucks the life right out of you. As soon as you make it more about people that you don't know than you do about just keeping up with your friends, and as soon as you feel the pressure to perform or say the right thing or have a voice on everything you have entered into that slippery slope. And you don't hear this much anymore, but psychologists have taught us something that you can actually see modeled in the life of Jesus Christ. Every person has the ability to have three 
really, really close friends. You saw that with Jesus. They had the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And then humans, this is the way we're wired. There's the, the next circle of, of relationships. You can have 12 close relationships. Like you were in these people's lives, about 12 of them. And then the next broader category of that is 40. And I mean, you see this literally laid out with Jesus, but like you can have, you know, 40, even that, that level three kind of friendship where it's like, yeah, you guys are friends. You can really, you can really hash out. You can have a great time together. And then about as wide as you can go with true relationships that actually are meaningful is 100 people. And that's for your, your max capacity people. They can handle max about 100 relationships. You see this throughout the Gospels. But social media is the enemy of that. And in many ways, it artificially builds an audience and it tells you that you're more than you actually are or you're somebody who's actually influencing people. That's a facade. And in that sense, it does have similarities to the Tower of Babel. To make a name for yourself, that was the core rebellion against God in the actual Tower of Babel. And just like then, God eventually confused their language. We're seeing it again today, and that's what I already touched on. But in the information age, people are becoming more tribalistic and living in echo chambers more than they ever have in our lifetimes. It's getting worse every year. After college, I, I didn't know any of this, but I just didn't really like the whole social media concept. And I trimmed down my social media. I just didn't really want it. I had a couple thousand friends on Facebook at the time, and that was in the early day. I don't know what year that was like 2011 or something and i just i didn't i didn't want it and i unfollowed a ton of people like in that back then i just unfriended a bunch of people and it wasn't like i had anything against these people i don't really want them to see every aspect of my life i didn't really know what i was doing and of course over time that it's built back up but when you have thousands and thousands of quote-unquote friends on social media we all know they aren't all your friends right they're acquaintances so everybody you've ever come across <laughs> from third grade on it's like they're there in your life i guess just following and social media says they're followers it tricks your mind so what can you do about it first of all just be aware be aware of what you are consuming and have the self-awareness to know the potential that it has to suffocate you and overwhelm you. And then most importantly, look to Jesus Christ. Are you finding your affirmation in what someone is saying about you online? Wow, I hope not. Or are you finding it from the truth of God, what he says about you in his word? And where are you seeking validation? Is it from your relationship with God? Or is it with that faceless stranger who doesn't really care that much about you at all? Or even worse, is there to use you and to get something from you? Something else that I've seen recently that really illustrates that is the whole health at every size push. And I heard a lady talking about this very recently. It's actually totally packaged and marketed just to women. And this lady who was describing this said it's because women naturally harbor more insecurities and emotions in relation to their figure, weight, and diet. You can tell a man, 
bro, you're fat. And he either nods, laughs, or he does something about it, right? Media outlets understand this difference between men and women, and they capitalize on it and sell health at every size to women only, exclusively. In this coddle approach scores rapid, consistent clicks and views, aka more revenue, as it keeps women in this vicious cycle. They, they feel insecure about their figure, their weight, their diet. They don't want to accept personal responsibility, and they go online to seek validation. The media tells them they're not fat. Social beauty and health standards are just wrong, and then they feel validated. They feel seen and heard. Then they don't have any reason to go get healthy or lose weight because it's society that needs to change, not them. So they stay overweight. Yet this leaves them feeling even more insecure and wrecked emotionally, so they return once again to the internet for validation, and the vicious cycle continues. And that's coming from a woman, and of course, this isn't just a women's problem either, but that's a specific example of seeking validation online in something that will only tease you and temporarily satisfy you. The only place you find true confidence in who you are is to put your identity in Jesus Christ. When you realize that you are chosen and called and that you are being sanctified, and even the unfortunate things and the fallen things that happen to you are going to work together for good to those who love God, you breathe easy. Then you can truly care more about God than what others think. And you don't have to perform. You don't have to fear man. And you don't have to even care what anyone does or says or thinks about you. And of course, we naturally don't want people to dislike us. But even if they do, you know what? I'm accepted in the beloved. And of course, there's much more to be said here. But I just hope this podcast gets you thinking. So Keep sharing your funny memes. Stay connected with the reasonable amount of people. Use it as a tool to enhance your hobby and to get more out of it. I mean, I certainly do. Use it to share truth. Use it to shine light. And I'm thankful for the Christian influencers out there who do produce great content as a platform for God's truth. Of course, that's great. That is missions right there in hostile territory, I might add. You can't be a missionary forever on a dangerous field, but if you feel called to do it, go for it. I'm not saying it's all bad. Of course not. But just think about how you consume social media and think about how you communicate on it. What is your goal? What is it doing to you? Are you letting the multitude of voices crowd out the voice that truly matters, the one voice that truly matters? Listen to what God says about you in his word and then move forward with confidence and actually live your best life by being surrendered to God, by being a servant. You really don't need self-care. You need to look at things the way God looks at them and you need to see people like God sees them and you need to love. You are loved and you are here on this earth right now to be a vessel of his love. So I'm going to end it right there, and I'm going to let you give me any feedback that you have. Did I miss something? Did I share something that was helpful for you to hear? I'd love to hear 
your thoughts, comments, questions, concerns about any of this. As always, you can reach out on Instagram through our website. Please like and share this episode. There I go. But if you can think of somebody in your sphere of influence, somebody that you know, a friend of yours, who actually would need to hear something like this, some some of the truth that's been in here. If it would be helpful for them, let them know about it, and I will pray that God uses it. You are loved. Oh,